0: Scripture reading for today will come from three different passages, Uh, Psalm 78, 1 through 8, 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 8, and Titus 2, 1 through 5. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1 through 8, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Titus chapter two, verse one through five. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Good morning, church. Thank you for the reading, Chanel, and thank you for the prayer, uh, Elder Uj. I hope you like the the name of our new Sunday school class. It's called CLASS. stands for Cornerstone Logos Adult Sunday School. Um, Pastor Andrew was the mind behind that, uh, so (laughs) I thought it was kind of clever when I I first heard it. I hope you... Hope you uh, are able to participate when we do kickstart kick that class. Uh, you can tell your friends, hey, let's go to class together, okay? That's the idea. Okay, so, so you know, uh, loosen up a bit, okay, this morning. <clears throat> I wish I could start over. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're continuing our, our series uh, in our vision, mission, and core values. Today, we're covering... Our sixth core value, which is intergenerational, and uh, the main idea for today is that the gospel is meant to transform the way we view our relationships, especially in the context of God's family and household, which is the church. So I want you to understand this: this how this gospel dynamic works and transform transforming our our, our view of the church family that we're all called to be a part of, okay? Now, to help this idea sink in a bit more, I wanted to share a bit of how I grew personally in my understanding of this concept. Uh, you see, before I understood and believed in the gospel, I was a very self-centered and, and very self-righteous person, as you can imagine, because, you know, when you don't live for a god who created the world in order to display His beauty and His glory and His grace through the life and death of His Son, if you don't commit your life to that, then what are you left to do? I mean, your life becomes mainly about fulfilling your own selfish needs. I mean, that's just how life is. But it's not as if I woke up each morning thinking that, I was going to live for myself and deliberately against God. It's just that by me not recognizing Christ to be the central purpose of all of life, it meant that by default, I was living in opposition to God's will and living in rebellion against God each day. It was by default, right? So you, you might not have this, like, in your mind, this direct hatred to God, but see, if you don't serve The Lord, if you don't believe and trust in him as your savior, as your king, then guess what? By default, you're living in rebellion against him. You know, None of us wakes up each morning thinking that we're going to sin against God, right? But over time, what happens is we gradually drift farther and farther away from him and his purpose and design for our lives. So look, I was a good kid by any human standard, but I was a self-righteous one. And I viewed everything in my life through a self-centered lens, you know, whether it's my relationship with my siblings, my my relationship with my parents, my relationship with church members, basically everyone in my life, without any exaggeration here, was viewed through a self-centered lens. I mean, how could these people around me serve my purposes and my agenda ultimately, that's how I viewed life. But once I experienced God's grace, I was given the eyes to see the world more and more from God's perspective, and it changed the way I view not only my own family, but also my church family. These people around me were no longer simply church people or weekend strangers, but they were now brothers and sisters in Christ and spiritual fathers and mothers whom I was called to love and honor as a younger man. That transformation had to take place in my heart and mind. Another important truth that I was able to see later on in life, <clears throat> as I myself became a father of my own children and also a spiritual father within the family of God, is, is how God had designed the gospel to be transferred from one generation to the next And how when one generation neglects its spiritual responsibility to love the gospel and intentionally communicate the gospel to the next generation, not only does the next generation suffer, but multiple generations after that suffer as well. I began to see life from that perspective. I began to kind of leave my myopic view and have this sort of kingdom perspective, looking at generations through this God-centered lens. It doesn't happen right away. I think just being a pastor, helped me see things uh, more from his perspective. And I, I challenge you to think of life through that same lens as well. So that's the heart really behind this core value, right? We want the church to be intergenerational. And so this message is devoted to sort of unpack what that means a bit more. I outlined the message in two points. Number one, each generation is given the sacred responsibility to transfer the gospel to the next generation. And two, we have a mutual responsibility toward each other as members of God's household. And So let me unpack these two things for us this morning, okay? First point is this. Each generation is given the sacred responsibility to transfer the gospel to the next generation. So... What what, what can we call this? We can call this a generational responsibility. Whether you're Gen X, Gen Y, or Gen Z, it doesn't matter. We are all given this generational responsibility, right, to faithfully transfer the gospel to the next generation. But let me add an accent to that by saying that there's a primary responsibility given to our men, okay? Are you a man this morning? You know what a man is? (laughs) If you're a man this morning, you are given a primary responsibility to transfer the gospel in this way, especially if you're a dad, you have children. I want you to feel that burden, that responsibility, that weight of responsibility that's been placed upon you. You won't hear this from many pastors, especially in this day and age, but it is an undeniable fact that God places this responsibility primarily on the shoulders of men. Listen to God's word once again. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings that from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our, once again, fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. So the accent is placed on fathers, right? Fathers are primarily held accountable, in other words, by God. Right? It's not saying that mothers are exempt, but simply saying that fathers are given that primary role. The New Testament put it this way. Children, obey your parents, Ephesians Ephesians 6. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So again, it's not that mothers are exempt, but the primary responsibility is placed on fathers. This idea is echoed throughout the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Now, I've been doing ministry long enough to have seen with my own eyes over and over again that what the Bible says about fatherhood is very true, The father's influence over their children are very large, If you show me a spiritually apathetic teenager, it's almost always the case that there's going to be a spiritually apathetic father in the home. And if you show me a spiritually awakened teenager, more often than not, the father is doing something intentional in the home. There's a correlation there. Of course, there are exceptions, but in general, this is how things are. It's easily observed. There was one study done many years ago in Switzerland drawing the connection between the church going habits of fathers and mothers and the effect on their children when they're grown. And let me just sum it up by sharing the findings, okay? In short, it says, if a father does not go to church, okay? If a father does not go to church... No matter how faithful his wife may be, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. A very dismal stat. On the other hand, if a father goes on a regular basis, regardless of the practice of the mother, it says between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend church. That's pretty remarkable. And if, if both parents just are disinterested, then... Basically, there is very little chance that children will ever become worshipers. Right? That's the finding. So, I mean, let's think about your, your experience, uh, your family context. Like, If you have parents who are both unbelievers and you're somehow sitting here as a Christian worshiping God, guess what? Right? You are a miracle. You are literally a miracle. You should not be here. But thanks be to God, right? He has granted you this amazing grace. You have, in a sense, bucked this trend. Not that you have done it, but God has blessed you with his grace. And now you're here, right? Because of that gift of grace he has poured upon your life. And so you should be thankful, right? If that's your life story. You know, my grandfather on my dad's side, as I've shared before, was an adulterer and an unbeliever. And it was my father uh, who was the first one in his family lineage to become a Christian. And one of his greatest God-given responsibilities was to make sure that the gospel was transferred not just to my generation, not just to me, but to Sella's generation and to Caleb's generation, right? a generation that my dad was not able to see but that was his responsibility, as Psalm 78 teaches us today. And I want you to know that that's the vision that you should have as well for your own lives and for your, the multiple generations that will follow. We are, trained, we are to train up and instruct our sons and daughters with that same kind of vision. What are some healthy examples? I had to think about this, and while not using the same illustrations I've used in the past, so I, I, I come up with another fresh example, okay? Uh, I believe that the spirit behind one of our uh, mission trips, we we haven't done mission trips in a few years now, but the spirit behind the Colville mission trip, uh, you know, Washington State, the Indian Reservation, remember that one, right, that was intended to bring together multiple generations, if you've ever been a part of that, you know, right? Not just the Cam, right, the oldest generation of our church, not just the EM, the sort of middle generation, but also the younger generation, right, the high schoolers, uh, the college students, that generation as well. And so that, that's always been the effort when we did. And so there's some, some people in the church that want to revive that effort, and I think it's a good thing, but we're still waiting for uh, some leaders to emerge, uh, people who would be able to spearhead. That so, that's something to pray for for sure. I've also been happy to see that our effort to serve the Lamb Center has encouraged not only our parents but also their children. So, I see more and more parents wanting to, you know, invite their children out that they would serve alongside each other. Right, and uh, you know, the the age limit right now is at thirteen. I've been told. So I was encouraged to hear there's one parent. Uh, inquiring, you know, are we able to bring out our children under age 13? And the answer has been not yet. Okay? <laughs> That's something to pray for as well. And if God would maybe give us uh, some other fresh opportunities where we can see multiple generations serve alongside each other, right, parents and children, no matter what, what their age. I think that would be a beautiful thing. So let's continue to think about ways we could involve the younger generation so that we can serve and grow together. Amen? Now, there is an unhealthy counterexample that we can find in 2 Kings 20, where we read about one of King Hezekiah's major failures, right? The prophet Isaiah, in that story, comes to Hezekiah bringing a word of judgment against his people. And God tells him that everything will eventually be carried to Babylon and that his people will become slaves under the Babylonian king. And even some of your sons, Hezekiah... Will be taken away as slaves. And after hearing such abysmal news, you would think that Hezekiah would be distraught and even in tears over the thought that his own children would be taken away as slaves. But no, instead, surprisingly, this was Hezekiah's response to Isaiah. He said, The word of the Lord spoken is good. Why not, if there will be security in my days? It's shocking for a king to say. I mean, it's like, he's basically saying, who cares what will happen as long as my generation, my life is intact? I mean, this is much like how people in our day think and operate, right? This is how our politicians think and operate. As long as our generation is good and and well-funded, who cares about the next generation to follow? They can kind of just, like, die in our debt. (laughs) That's what we see in in our culture. It's very commonplace. And people have called this sort of mindset generational narcissism, where your only concern is with your your own generation, kind of to save your own skin. It's a very selfish way to live. So, brothers and sisters, please know that God's heart for us is that we would not be such a self-absorbed generation who only thinks about ourselves. When I was a a younger pastor, I was in youth ministry for quite some time. I did pretty much only youth ministry when I was in Philly, and then I moved here in 2009, did some youth ministry until Pastor Jacob was able to join us in 2019. I think late 2011, 2012. But when I was a youth pastor, uh, and, you know, I, I take teenagers on retreats and these outings, I would do my best to instruct our teenagers, right, to leave things better than they found them, right? Have you heard that before, that, that expression? Leave things better than how you found them. Let's leave the retreat site cleaner than we found it. Right? Is that a good value? I thought so. Right? Let's leave the bowling alley or the restaurant, right? even the restaurant bathrooms, cleaner than we found them, was a repeated refrain. And it was to train all of us to think beyond ourselves and to think of the people coming after us. And it absolutely drove me nuts when I would find the toilet seats stained by urine. Right, I mean, when your youth pass you, you, after after a, a high school kid or a middle school kid uses the toilet, you often find the toilet seats all all like soiled. <laughs> it's like what? It, it made me so angry. I remember just addressing our high schoolers uh, after experiencing such things. But if we only think about our own generation, right, the gospel will be lost very quickly as we have been witnessing in our own culture as well. I mean, a culture, think about it, that once used to be considered a culture heavily shaped by Christian morals and values. What has become of it? I've heard uh, D.A. Carson, a well-known scholar, put it like this, losing the gospel doesn't happen all at once. It's much more like a four-generation process. He says, if one generation accepts the gospel and believes it, it's very likely that the second generation will simply assume the gospel. Okay? So no, no matter how like uh, passionate the first generation may be about the gospel, if they don't do a good job right transferring the gospel to the second generation, guess what? The second generation will, will simply assume the gospel, and they won't really have That will have a working knowledge of it. And if the second generation assumes the gospel, then the third generation will confuse the gospel. And if the third generation confuses the gospel, then the next generation will lose the gospel. So it starts with an embrace of the gospel, to assuming the gospel, to confusing the gospel, and then to finally losing the gospel. That's how it generally plays out. And the point is that if our generation is confused about the gospel, which I believe it is for the most part, since our, whatever your, you know, Gen, Gen X or Gen, Gen Z or Y, you know, all of our generations, okay, we, we think so highly of ourselves, don't we? We're so self-righteous, we feel so entitled to receive things that used to be considered blessings of God's grace. We think we deserve these things, and we elevate ourselves in such a way that diminishes the severity of human sin and the value, therefore, of God's grace. What happens when we do that? What happens when we think that way? Well, it confuses the gospel. What need really do we have of the gospel then if that's what we really believe and think? And the result is that our children's generation will likely lose the gospel if that is our mindset. I don't want to sound all doom and gloom because I do fully believe that God can awaken deadened hearts whenever he wills, but we should also, brothers and sisters, earnestly desire for God to awaken our own hearts that we may love the gospel and treasure it once again. Amen? Secondly, we have this mutual responsibility toward each other as members of God's household Do you really believe that we're a family of believers, that we are a family? I hope as you mature in your faith, you see the church in that way more and more. I chose two very practical New Testament passages to share with you this morning, and they were both read. The first one is the 1 Timothy passage. The second was the Titus passage, and both of them, they may sound familiar to you at first glance, but there is a different, there's a different emphasis for each, okay? 1 Timothy tells us, how we should treat people in the church who are different in age and gender, okay? So, how are we to treat them when they're different in age and gender, right? Titus, the second one, tells us what content each age group and gender should be taught, okay? So, there is a difference. So, let's look at the first first. First Timothy uh, reads a portion of it, Do not rebuke an older man, but... Encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. <laughs> Our lives would be so different if all of us simply obeyed this passage, right? It seems so simple, but it's it's so difficult, isn't it? To treat people this way. You know, for me to fully unpack this would take too much time, but let me at least point out the fact that the reason why young Timothy needs to hear this from the older Apostle Paul is because there are these generational gaps or these generational conflicts and there's, there's these gender gaps and gender conflicts that exist in our relationships that make these relationships confusing and difficult at times. And wisdom is needed to navigate through each of them. For example, from the perspective of young people, Okay? And for our purposes this morning, I'm counting myself as a young person as well, okay? Because compared to the CAM over there, I'm relatively young, right? Uh, so, from the perspective of young people, the older men on the CAM side, sometimes, in our minds at least, they need to be rebuked, right? No? They do. Sometimes we think, man, those older men over there, they need to be rebuked, right? Isn't it easy? Let's be honest. Isn't it easy for us to view older men with contempt at times? Not all the time, but sometimes. Why? Because older men tend to be stuck in their traditions, and they're usually not so concerned about contextualizing the gospel and reaching the younger generation, They just want to preserve what they have. This is the generational conflict that we have felt over the years, if you didn't know. And it's not just an Asian thing. All ethnicities, I've been learning, struggle with this kind of generational conflict. I've heard one pastor put it this way. A church has to really make a choice between embracing its traditions or its children. I think that's generally true. The point being that if your traditions get in the way of the church's mission to reach the lost and to raise up faithful disciples and to really, you know, ex- extend the gospel to multiple generations that follow after you, then they need to be quickly put aside. All right? To be clear, not, not all traditions are bad or evil or useless. You know, some should definitely be preserved, but some traditions, if you are failing to reach the next generation, for instance, they have to be quickly abandoned is the point. And the older the church, and our church, if you didn't know, is rather old, when I first interviewed here in 2009, I mean, that's one thing that they emphasized multiple times, that our church is the oldest Korean Presbyterian church in northern Virginia, was what I was told repeatedly. And at the time, I wasn't sure what to make of it, you know, thinking, is that a really good thing? I, I can see pros and cons. But the thing is, the older the church, right, the harder it will be for the church to let go of its past. And that is, I think, what's at least uh, something that our church does struggle with. Let me, let me uh, share a story with you, okay, just to kind of help, help you understand uh, why I believe so strongly about this. Uh, you are currently sitting in very nice chairs because they're new. Okay. Uh, if you don't think these chairs are comfortable, then you're spoiled. Okay. Uh, I know that they're not the best chairs, but they're they're really nice, relatively speaking, compared to the chairs we had before. Uh, I'm not talking about the ones right before. The, right, the ones right before they're similar to the chairs you're sitting on now. Remember the red ones? But before the red ones, they were there was another set of chairs that were also red. When I first got here, those chairs had. Um, a metal frame that you can visibly see that went around. And because they were so old, there was a good amount of rust around them, okay? So about half the chairs were rusty, and some of them were kind of bent out of shape, okay? So imagine coming to worship and having to sit in those chairs. And not only that, right, because <clears throat> at the time we had, like, youth lock-ins done, and uh, what, what took place was the youth would basically use those chairs as their own beds, Okay? And they would drool on them and stain them. <laughs> it was pretty gross, to be honest, right? So uh, we had those chairs. And so we wanted to, after like a couple of years, we wanted to get rid of them. We thought it would be an easy thing to just kind of get rid of them. And so we, we uh, rented a dumpster. And, and I had some of our EM members carry those chairs uh, to the dumpster in the back that was set up. And uh, they thought it would be, you know, a simple task. But no, one of the older men from the KM started yelling at them, <laughs> like literally yelling at them, telling them they, they can't be throwing out perfectly good chairs, right? And so, I saw them carrying those chairs back to the building. I said, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they told me what was happening, that there was an older man yelling at them. So, I had to go. I found that it was, I'm not going to <laughs> uh I had to talk to him gently. Uh, why? Because this passage, it tells me to you know, speak to older men, treat them like fathers, right? So, I did, you know, 죄송, 죄송하지만, you know we, we bought new chairs, you know, and we have to uh, get rid of these old chairs. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, he, he was very reluctant to have us throw the chairs away, so we had to compromise. And we put those old chairs, we, stole, we stored them in the church garage for at least three years, Okay, until finally, after three years, we were able to uh, completely discard them, right? But it was—it wasn't an easy thing to kind of having to deal with that sort of mindset year after year, right? Uh, so change—it—it it, it came slowly. Um, so it's like this—you know—we we may be tempted to get upset with the older generation at times, but we're taught here again that. Young members in the church are not to be harsh with older men. That means if they're, you know, being unreasonably stubborn, we're not to harshly rebuke them. We're not to be mean-spirited in our speech. We're not to speak down on them. Rather, we're to gently point out their fault and encourage them and treat them as our fathers, you see. Now, some of you, I don't know, you may be disrespectful towards your own dads at home. And if you are, then I would ask that you would first repent of that. That's not a good thing. So once, after you repent of that sin, you need to come to church and you need to start treating older men in the church as you would your father. Because older men are to be encouraged with words of hope. Right? That's what we learn here. And by the way, just a Make sure I balance this a little little bit. I don't want to make it sound as if older men are all just, you know, uh, difficult to to deal with and not worth listening to. That's not true, okay? Older members in the church, they should be listened to uh, rather than be ignored or dismissed. We should respect their opinions and thoughts because of their lifelong wisdom that they've accumulated over the years. Uh, So I want us to always consider the wisdom that is handed down from the older generation. Uh, One thing that has been shared with me multiple times over the years, coming from the KM, is that I mean, I've 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 had parents come to me and say, you know, Pastor Moksenim, uh, my kids, you know, my son has become too worldly. Can you pray for him? Right. I can think of multiple, you know, encounters like that. Please pray for my children. They become too worldly. Okay. And what am I going to do? Am I going to just dismiss that as like just, you know, uh, lies from the devil? No. It's something that I, I seriously consider and I think we all should consider as well because let's be honest, you know, we do have a tendency to love the world too much. You know, we love our food, we love our drinks, we love our toys, right? We we love this lifestyle of comfort and wealth and when we continue to live that pattern for many years, then guess what? I think from their perspective, we, we become almost indistinguishable from the culture that we're called to serve and witness to. That's what they see, you know? So we shouldn't dismiss their concerns at all. We should take it to heart and examine our own lives to see if there's something that needs to be repented of. Let me conclude the message by sharing a word from our Titus passage, the second New Testament passage, okay? Titus 2 tells us what each age group and gender should be taught, right? The content of what should be taught. And if you're serious about wanting to grow in godliness as a man or a woman, whether you're old or young, this is is such a helpful passage, okay? Uh, Let me read a portion of this. Older men, it says... And this, for the purpose of uh, the message for this, I want all of us to consider just relative to where we are right now for our congregation, okay? But older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in love or sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Very plain teaching. It's very clear. Some of you are not going to want to hear this, but if you want to know what the average man is, and women are like in any given season, just do this trick, okay? Think of the opposite of what God's Word is saying in these verses. Think of the opposite. In other words, why does the Apostle Paul instruct older men to be sober-minded? What's the opposite of being sober-minded? Why does he he instruct Timothy to teach the older men to be sober-minded? Well, it's because the average older man Loves to do what? Loves to drink. <laughs> and the average older man loves to live in a buzzed state of mind. Because, as I've shared before, as you get older, life gets harder. Right? And there are many more stress factors to deal with, especially when, you're, when you begin uh, to live out your life in the 40s and 50s. But I would say, really, the 40s or late 30s is when the stress level increases tenfold. Midlife crisis is real. One beer becomes two beers. Two beers is not enough for older men. It's like drinking water, right? So they go for the heavier stuff. Why? Because they need to, in some way to, to make themselves feel at ease, calm themselves down through alcohol. That's the effect It has. Older men are told to be dignified and self-controlled because many of them have become grumpy old men who have little control over their anger. And as you get older, I'm sure you notice this in your own lives, but you tend to cuss more. Maybe not audibly, but inwardly, you tend to cuss more. Isn't that the case? Because you have a hard time controlling your anger. Older men, they, they're told to be sound in faith okay, because older men tend to be stubborn and they think all of a sudden they can just create their own faith and religion. They can create their own belief systems. Right? That's how stubborn they become. Older men are told to be sound in love because most men are hooked on pornography and they specialize in lust rather than love. Older men are told to be sound in steadfastness because many men are not dependable as they get older. Right? They've, they love to take their trips They love to play golf on the weekends. They make all sorts of excuses to leave the family or leave the church because they want their own just privacy. It's like, where'd they go again? (laughs) Where are they? Where is he? And so how can anyone depend on such men if they're never around? And so they're taught to be steadfast in their faith, you see. I'm exposing our men a lot today, aren't I? So let me balance things out by sharing something about women, okay? I'll be more gentle with our sisters. I'm scared. <laughs> Older women are told to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Because as some of you may have seen in your own aging moms, every woman, they go through a season of menopause, and that is such a difficult time for women. You know, the men go through midlife crisis first, and then once they kind of become sane again, the women, they kind of, you know, it's their turn to kind of go crazy, right? But older women in menopause, they, they really, they do become a little crazy, and they start running their mouths more without any restraint, and just like older men, they use wine or scotch or bourbon or whiskey, whatever they love or learn to love, and they, they drink to soothe their daily sorrows. And I'm not, you know, let me qualify this by saying, I'm, I'm not saying that thou shalt never drink, okay? Uh, we're not going to convert to back. You know, being Baptist all of a sudden, if you didn't know baptists they, they, they usually tend to be like, no alcohol whatsoever. Uh, but we're Presbyterians, okay? So <laughs> we, we believe in Christian freedom. We believe in Christian freedom, but that means being responsible with that freedom, okay? And so you can drink in moderation, but you must not, you must not abuse alcohol. But I'm telling you, as life gets harder, as you get older, it's, it becomes more of a challenge, right, to temper those... Cravings, that desire to overdrink. You know, I was, I was, uh, I have, you know, older friends now. I know, even even pastors, they they tend to drink a lot. You know, I was visiting a, a pastor friend not too long ago. God was like chugging down five glasses of scotch or whiskey, whatever it was. It was heavy stuff. I'm like, are you okay? <laughs> I never, drink, I've never seen a pastor drink so much. I'm like, are you are you okay? And he's like, well, it's only my fifth glass. Like, okay, I don't know. I'm just. Worried, (laughs) but be careful, okay? Moderation is important. Uh, Older women are told to teach what is good. Teach what is good. That means teach what is right, okay? Because why is this important? They, they, They start letting their emotions dictate what is good and right rather than choosing to live in humble obedience to God's word. Look at how some of these older women in our culture have abandoned the plain teaching of God's word in the name of some false notion of love that our postmodern culture has conjured up recently. And older women are taught to train the young women to love their husbands and children, etc. And this tells us something about the average young women as well, doesn't it? An average young woman's love for her husband is often very conditional. And even her love for her children, sometimes it's not what it should be, right? She either idolizes her children or she treats them as personal inconveniences that can be discarded through socially accepted medical procedures such as abortion. I've heard one stat say, I think Pastor Jacob, he Kind of corrected me on, this, on the statistics. I, I thought it was more like 55%, but he, he was telling me it's actually 80% of abortions now are done through the pill, All right, So it can be done very discreetly without any, anyone knowing. You just kind of do, do it and, and life is exterminated. This is the culture in which we live. And young women, let me just mention a few more, Okay. Young women are taught to be self-controlled and pure because many of them have, have been reading things like Fifty Shades of Grey. They love to watch maybe too much Netflix or K-dramas. Okay? And, and they're just immersing, they're saturating their minds with ungodly images and thoughts. Young women are also taught to work at home because in their idealism, They think that they can have it all, right? A great career, a great marriage, a blessed motherhood. So instead of committing to the home, many of them find ways to move as far away from working at home as possible, because that is what the culture has taught them. For the record, I'm not saying that women cannot at all work outside the home, but I need to emphasize once again that if you're married, you are primarily to be committed to the work of the home. And if you have a problem with that, please understand I'm only a messenger. (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger. And lastly, young women are taught to be kind and submissive to their own husbands. And on this last one, I'll let you make your own conclusions, okay? Because I don't want to get any angry emails from you. I'm just (laughs) half-joking, Okay, you guys are way too serious. Um, no, take God's word seriously, okay? But, you know, I'm trying to lighten the mood at times because this is not, not easy for me to, to be, be sharing these things, honestly. I know, I know it's very difficult, uh, uncomfortable to hear, but see, by intergenerational, we mean that we are committed to growing and maturing whether we're a part of the older generation or younger generation, okay? That we're committed to helping one another grow as members of God's household, his family, right? And this is the instruction we're given. This is the mutual responsibility that we have toward each other as an intergenerational ministry. So in closing, I just, I want to ask that you would do your part to make this possible. Right? Everyone has a role to play if you're a member of God's family. Right, So may may God, by his grace, enable us to love him and serve his family well. Please take God's word to heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for guiding us with your word today. As it is our desire to be more like you and how we relate to one another, we pray that your spirit would empower us to be a church that would treat older men as fathers, older women as moms, young men as brothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And as you empower us to thoughtfully invest in the next generation of believers, we ask that you would, by your power, raise up a generation who not only knows the gospel but fully believes in the gospel and loves the gospel and is committed to transferring the gospel to the generation after them. May all this be done for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray, amen.